that chapter today. I actually have just uh, 7 through 14 in the, um, in the bulletin, uh, but we're actually, which is not even, that's what we looked at last week, so I just forgot to change that. I apologize. Uh, but it's actually going to be 15 all the way through the end of the chapter, which is verse 38. Now, part of this is a genealogy of Jesus, and so we're going to struggle through these names together. Uh, Y'all forgive me, but we're going to work through them together, okay? So let's hear God's word. It says, As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but the one who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barns. But the chaff will burn. He will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matthet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josic, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Mela, the son of Mina, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. The son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashon, the son of Amenadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sirach, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Meheliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. Glory and condescension. Now, some of you may be familiar with a reality TV show called Undercover Boss. Uh, In it, cameras follow an owner or the CEO of a large corporation, and they disguise themselves, and they go to work kind of at an entry-level position at whatever company they work for. And so in one episode, the the chief development officer of Subway 
uh, he kind of comes down and he goes to work in a local shop just making sandwiches. Uh, in another episode, the, the mayor of Cincinnati, he works as a mechanic and then also as a sanitation worker. And then I think in the very first episode, which may be the best one, uh, the president of Waste Management, uh, he works uh, and cleans porta potties and he collects garbage. Now, these people in high positions, right, that they come down to the lowest position. And the whole time, of course, nobody knows who they really are. And so it allows them to, to see a side of the company that they might not have been able to see otherwise. And it allows them to get close to people in a way they certainly would not have been able to do as the boss, right? They're able to, to get close to people. They're able to identify with people in a way that they would not have been able to do if they were kind of in their ivory tower, if they were in the, the office all the time. Now, look. I get that this is just a TV show, and it's a reality TV show at that, and so it's hard to know for sure what real changes come from any of this. But the concept is a good one, right? I think all of us have worked jobs, whether our boss was a man or a woman, where we've said, I, I wish he would come down and see what things are really like. I, I wish he would come work my job, walk in my shoes just for a little while so they could see what this company, see what things are really like. We, we want them to get a taste of the real world. We want them to, to be able to identify with us in a way that it doesn't seem that they can. And look, we know that, that normally that never happens, right? Normally people with power, prestige, they never stoop to that level. But, but wouldn't it be nice if they did? Wouldn't it be nice if this wasn't just simply a, a TV show? What if, what if this really was the, the reality of history? What if this was our reality for you and me? What if someone with, with unspeakable power, with infinite worth, stooped down to identify with you? Actually, not simply just to, to identify with you, though, though he can certainly do that, but what if they came to take your place, to take your hardship, to take your faults, and ultimately to raise you up to, to his place, to, to a place that we could never deserve. If a person were to do that, that that'd be a person worth throwing our lot in with, right? That'd be a, a person worth following. Well, here in our passage today, we're, we're reminded that that's exactly what we have in the Christ. That's what we have in Jesus. As John kind of, as Luke closes John's ministry, John points us once again, away from himself, and he points us to the one to come. Then we have this scene where, where the voice of the Father from heaven speaks down. He says, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. We see the, the glory of the Christ, right? It's on full display here. But then at the same time, we see Jesus baptized in the Jordan. In that river in 2 Kings chapter 5, that, that Naaman says, not even worth his time, not even worth him going and dipping in. It's so dirty, it's so nasty, he can't even go get it. There's better rivers for him back in his homeland, right? We see Jesus there, receiving a baptism of repentance. Here we see that the heights of glory. Here we see the depths of condescension. And I want to submit to you today that as we see those things, we, are, we come face to face 
with the love of, that Christ has for us, a love that is unmeasurable, a love that is so deep we cannot even begin to comprehend it. And so I want us to think about that this morning as we move through this passage. Let's look at it together. The first thing that I want you to see is the glory of Christ, the glory of Christ. Now, over the last few weeks, what we've seen is really the greatness and the influence of John the Baptist, right? We've seen that despite his appearance, despite the location of his ministry, which is out in the wilderness, away from the people, despite the harshness of his message, Luke and all of the other gospel writers make it clear that John, as the people predicted at his birth, is indeed great. He's a great man, and he's doing great things. People are coming out to him in droves. His words, his baptism are changing their lives, it seems. And so this is really an amazing scene. What's going on with John, what's going on with his ministry, is is amazing to behold. And so on some level, it's not surprising that we find there in verse 15 that the people think John might be more than what he really is. They think there that he might be the Christ, right? That's what they say. It says the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. Now, on some level, this this shouldn't be surprising to us, right? These are people that are stooped in the Old Testament, and so they know the predictions. They know they're looking forward to what is to come. They're looking for the restoration of Israel, They're looking for a king to sit on the the throne of his father David. They're looking for for a redeemer. They're looking for a leader. They're looking for the Christ. And for 400 years it has seemed that that would never come. But now in John there is one on the scene that seems to fit the bill. He has power. He has boldness. He has a message that is effective. We see there in verse 19 that he even has this confrontation with Herod, right, over his wife. It's actually his brother's wife that he takes for himself. And we know ultimately that leads him to jail, that leads him to be beheaded. But but he's confronting the the political system of the day. And so here's a man that, that seems to fit the mold of the Christ. Though they know the prophecy of Isaiah, of Malachi, that there's going to come one who's going to prepare the way, they've skipped past all of that, and they've gone right to the, to the good stuff, right? They've gone right to the Christ. Now, look, there, there's a good message in that for us, right? Uh, there, there's, there's something for us there. It's good and right to anticipate what God is doing, what he will do, uh, but our tendency is to read Scripture and to get to the, the quote-unquote good parts, right? It's to get to the parts that, that we want to see. We have a tendency to skip over a lot of things to get to, to the things that are easy for us. And this reminds us that we have to take all of God's counsel, right? We have to see the whole thing. We have to take it all as it comes. And we have to trust that he is working it out in the way that he should. But, but what I really want you to see here is, is John's reaction to all of this. You know, we've already talked about his purpose. We've talked about his humility as he pointed people to Jesus. The fact that he lived under that mantra of he must increase and I must decrease. But it's hard for us to read this today and not consider that again. Consider how hard it must have been for John to do what he is about to do when people are looking at him saying, you're the Christ. They're giving him the glory. They're giving him the honor. 
how easy would it have been for John to sit back and just kind of bask in that a little bit, right? To say, you know what? I am pretty good. I am pretty amazing. Look at all these people. Look at the lives that I've changed. It would have been so easy for him to, to take that for himself. Notice what John does. Not only does he point them to Jesus, he doesn't simply say, no, I'm not the one, you need to look ahead. But he proceeds to tell them all the ways that that the Christ is greater than he is. He puts himself in the back seat. He not only points ahead, but, but he almost degrades himself by showing them how great the one is who is to come. And We're going to look at that in just a second, the way he does that. Let me just pause and ask you this question. Who receives the glory in your life on a day-to-day basis? Who is the one that is getting the honor? Who is the one that is getting the praise for the things that are going well in your life, for your job, for your success, for whatever it is that, that we look to, that we contribute to our own doings? Whether it's work, whether it's our hobbies, especially when it comes to our religious things, right? Those are the things we really want praise. We want somebody to notice. We want to get credit for it. When we do something that's religious, we want somebody to see it. And that was the problem with the Pharisees. The problem with the Pharisees was not necessarily the things that they did. They knew the law. They did it well. The problem was that they wanted everybody to notice it. They wanted everybody to see what they were doing. Their, their, Their hearts were to honor themselves, to glorify themselves. Not Jesus. We want that same thing. Now, on some level, I don't know that that's necessarily completely wrong. You know, Jesus does recognize the things that we do. He is a good father, just like our children come to us and they want to, they want to, we want us to recognize what they've done. It's the same way with God the Father. But the problem comes, of course, when we fail to remember that ultimately the glory is not ours. It belongs to the one who is greater. It belongs to the one who has blessed us with whatever it is that we may have. God is the one who gets all glory, honor, and praise. As Christians, we don't have to boast in ourselves, but as John does here, as Paul reminds us over and over again, if we boast, our boast is in the Lord. Now, friends, we live in a world where we are called, as we've prayed already this morning, for our lives to look different, to look different from the world that we live in. In what way could could our lives look more different than this? Tonight, there's going to be a giant event on our TV screens, right? And the whole point of that event is to say, hey, look at me. Look, Look at me on this football field. Look at me up here on this stage. It is a giant tower of Babel to to what we all as humans can do. And look, I'm not telling you to to not go home and watch the Super Bowl. I think if we have the right perspective, we can do that. But what I'm telling you is is that's the world that we live in, a world that is narcissistic, a world that is all about ourselves, a world that is constantly putting the glory and the honor back on us. It is what the people did at the Tower of Babel, right? That we're going to make our own way to heaven. We're so good, we're so awesome, we're going to make our own way. Because we need to live as Christians reminding people that that's not true. That if anybody deserves glory, if anybody deserves honor, it's not us. It's him. Yes, he has blessed us with these things. Yes, he has given us skills. 
but it is he who has done those things. And so we live for his glory. We live for his honor. And John reminds us of that here. But then he shows us, like I said, how it is that this Christ is greater than him. And he shows us that in two ways. First, John says that, that this Christ is greater, he is more worthy in his person as a man. You see that there in verse 16. He says, he who is to come is mightier than I. Again, he, he is more worthy. He is more glorious. In fact, John says, he is so glorious. He says, I'm not even worthy enough in comparison to untie his sandals. Now, it's hard for us to, to get the full weight of what he's trying to say there. Uh, but one commentator puts it this way. In that society, when a student would come to a teacher, he would basically become his, his servant. In exchange for knowledge, he would do all of his menial tasks. So whatever the, the teacher needed, the student would go do. But they drew a line in the sand at this point. He would do everything except stoop down and untie his sandals. There's a quote, and I meant to bring it from a rabbi from this time that says, a student can do all things except stoop down and untie the sandals of his teacher. He says, even he can't do that. What does John say to us here? He says, he's not even worthy to begin there. He's not even worthy to be this Christ's slave, to be his servant, to stoop down and untie his sandals. This one who is to come is more worthy. He's more glorious. He is superior in every way. We see this also there at the baptism of Jesus. I'm jumping ahead here a little bit. But if you go to verse 22, as that voice speaks from heaven... As the father looks on his son, what does he say? He says, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Now what man has ever received such praise? Moses? Maybe, but you remember what the author of Hebrews says, right? In Hebrews chapter 3 and in verse 5, he says that, that Moses, as he's comparing Moses and Jesus, he says that Moses was a servant. He was faithful in all that he did, but he was a servant in God's house. Jesus is a son in God's house, right? There's a distinction. There's a greatness that, that the Christ has that even Moses cannot compare with. This one to come is equal with the Father, and because he is, he is greater. He is more worthy. And so, as a man, as a person, he's greater than John. But then secondly, you see that he is more worthy in his work, in his ministry, Again, John's message of repentance, of baptism, that they've been effective in their way. But, but look at what he says there in verse 16. He says, I'll baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am unworthy to tie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. As important as John's ministry has been, it couldn't by itself affect that inward change that the people really needed, right? That, that outward sign of cleansing, of repentance. It was just that. It was an outward sign. It couldn't get to the hearts of the people. John says the one who is to come, he will baptize you not only with water, but with the Holy Spirit. He can call people to repentance, 
He can call people to confess their sins, and he can actually forgive those sins, right? That's what he does in Mark chapter 2 that makes everybody so mad. You remember the men lower their, their friend down before him on the mat, and Jesus sees him, and everybody expects him to say, hey, get up, you're healed. And what does Jesus say? He says, your sins are forgiven. And the people know only God can forgive sins, and so they're angry. But the point is, is Jesus can do that. He is God, so he can forgive sins, something John can never truly do. John can only point ahead to the one who could do that. Jesus can give the Holy Spirit who can transform our lives, as we saw last week, who can help us bear the real fruit of repentance. His baptism is effective because it comes with the Holy Spirit. Secondly, notice also, not only does he baptize with the Holy Spirit, but he also baptizes with fire. Now, there's some debate over what exactly it is that John is referring to here. You know, it makes you think of that passage in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and it says they have tongues of fire. It makes you think of those kind of things. But most commentators agree that, that given the context, what he's talking about is judgment. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit, but he also brings a, bapti- a baptism of judgment. Look at verse 17 there. It says, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. John could tell them about the wrath to come, right? He does that. Who told you to flee from this wrath? You brood of vipers. He told them to flee from it. But this one who is to come, he executes that judgment. He is the one who brings the very wrath of God on those who do not believe. And so the picture that we have here is clear. In every way, this Christ, he is greater. He's greater in his person. He's greater in his work. He's greater in ultimately what he will bring, a real forgiveness, a real salvation, and a real judgment. Now, all of this, it sets us up for a scene that that is truly nothing short of amazing. We've seen the glory of the Christ. We've seen it on full display here. But secondly, I want you to notice the condescension of the Christ. And you see that in verses 21 and following. Now, we're going to work through, uh, in reverse here. We're going to start with this genealogy of Jesus, and I, I won't try to reread it. Uh, we struggled enough the first time through it. But as you look through this, again, it's a reminder to us of Christ's humanity, right? Now, Matthew and Luke, they both give us a genealogy, and if you know your Bibles, you know that they are different. And there's enough scholarly work out there. There's enough pages that we don't have time to go through it all or the patience. But just let me say this. There's no reason for us to believe that either one of these are inaccurate, either one of these are not right. Most likely, there's two options of what has happened here. Either Matthew has started and has gone through all of the kings that would sit on the throne, which would all have been Jesus' ancestors, right? All the way back to David. And, and Luke simply lists the fathers in line all the way back to Adam. Or the other more plausible alternative is that Luke traces Mary's family tree all the way back. And Matthew traces Joseph's. Now, either way, both are in Scripture, and so both can be trusted. And both show us the truth that, one, Jesus came from real parents, and two, he came 
from a real family. A real family. Already we've seen in Luke that that's enough to convince us that Christ has condescended farther than we could ever imagine. But look at some of the names that are in this list. And if you take Matthew's also into account, think about the people that we have here. These are sinful men in every way. You know, you have Terah, who, who is a pagan, right? Abraham's father, who lived in the land of the Chaldeans, right? He, he lived in Ur, over on the other side of the Jordan. He wasn't even a believer. You, you have Jacob, who, who was a liar and a thief. You have Judah, who, who, if you know his story there in Genesis, was not a good man. It was a, a Jerry Springer show, right? If you, if you really look back on it. Even David, the greatest king of them all, He's a murderer. He's an adulterer. All the way back to Adam, whose sin plunged mankind in, into darkness. All of these people, when you think about Matthews, you have Rahab. You, know, you have Ruth, the foreigner. You have all of these people. And it makes us stop and say, why, why would Jesus choose to come from these people? Couldn't the Father have given him a higher class of citizen to be his ancestors? Couldn't he have had some aunts and uncles who, who were decent folks, some, some great-great-grandfathers who were decent people? Well, certainly he could have. But what did Jesus come to do? He'd come to save thieves and murderers and adulterers and liars, sinners like these folks, like his aunts and uncles, like his great-grandfathers. And he does it by getting right down in the mess of it all. He does it by putting himself in the mess of all of this life. Yes, God could have given him a pure line, but Jesus came to identify with us. He came to be like us in every way. And so in this genealogy, we see how far the Christ stooped, how far he condescended. But we also see it there in verses 21 and 22, right? Now this is, again, this is an amazing scene and it's one that's hard for us to really get our minds around. It's hard for us to grasp. And Luke, unlike most of the other gospel writers, he almost just kind of skims over it there in verse 21. He says, Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized. That's enough to give us pause, or that should give us pause. What is Jesus doing receiving baptism at all but especially a baptism that is for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. After all, he is the sinless one, right? He has no sins to be forgiven. He had no sin to repent of, to wash away. You remember in Matthew's gospel, John recognizes this in verses 13 through 15. When Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? John recognizes that this is backwards. This is not the way it should be. What does Jesus say there in verse 15? He says, let it be so for now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? Well, in order to save sinners, Christ in a way had to join with sinners, right? In other words, he had to stand in solidarity with them. As Isaiah puts it, he had to be numbered among the transgressors. And so Jesus is baptized, not for his sake, 
But he's baptized for our sake. He's baptized to become like us, to identify with us. Again, in every way. And he does this not only here at the beginning of his ministry, but he does it throughout his life. Remember Isaiah says he has no form that we should look upon him. There's nothing about Jesus that would set him apart as this glorious one, this one who is the most worthy man who has ever been born. Jesus himself says that the birds have nests and the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, right? He lived his life wandering around preaching the good news with no home of his own. He chose at every moment to hang out with lepers and tax collectors, with those who were ostracized, with those who were the lowest of society. Those were the people that he was eating with, that he was healing, that he was going out to see. Every moment of his life was a moment where he was taking the lowest place. Over the last few weeks, I've had the opportunity to study uh, the, the prophets, and Isaiah 6 particularly, I love that passage. But you remember when when Isaiah sees that vision of God on the throne and there's smoke and it's this amazing scene that the cherubim are there, they're covering their eyes, they're covering their feet, they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. His train is so magnificent, it fills the heavenly temple there. And when he speaks, his voice is so powerful, it shakes the very foundation. You know what John says in John chapter 12? The person that Isaiah saw on that throne was Jesus. That was the Lord. That's what John says to us in John chapter 12. That one who who shook the foundations of the heavenly temple, who Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. That one is the one who stoops down not only unties the the sandals of his disciples, but he washes their feet. He is the one who is beaten and mocked and rejected. He is the one who is hung on a cross, cursed outside the city walls. He is the one who takes on sin, who drinks the, the cup of God's wrath down to the very dregs. He is the one who is left broken and forsaken. Why? Why would the glorious one, the Christ, the very Son of God, do something like this? Why would he die alone? The death of a sinner. He did it for us. He did it so he could be our substitute, so that he could be our spotless lamb. He identifies with sinners here in our passage, in his baptism. In his genealogy, at every point in his life, he becomes like us to show us that that amazing love that he has for us. We sing that song, Man of Sorrows, what a name. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? I know those are two different songs. But the amazing love, it truly is a love that is beyond comprehension. A love that is beyond degree, a love beyond what we can possibly, think of the greatest love you've ever known. There's love of a mother, the love of a spouse, whatever it is. It pales in comparison, as great as that may be, to what Jesus has for us, to what he has done here. And so, friends, I know it's late, and I know you're ready to go. I know you're ready for me to hush. But I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, do you know that love? Have you experienced that kind of love in your life? Is that the, the story of your life? 
that Jesus has loved you. That you can rest in it. If you put your faith in Him, not looking to yourself, not looking to your own glory, not looking to the things of this world, but looking only to Him today, today, will you rest in the love that He has for you? Will you rest in Him alone today for your salvation? Let's pray together. Father, as we consider what Jesus has done, the, the, the glory that, that he had with you before the world ever began, uh, the glory that he had as the, the only begotten son, the eternal one, the, the creator of all things. Lord, it is amazing to see him then in scripture, being baptized with the baptism of repentance, identifying with sinners, going to a cross and dying in our place. Lord, what a love you must have for us to send your son to do that. What a love he must have to, to save sinners in such a way. Father, it's a way that none of us ever could have thought up, none of us ever could have predicted. We never would do it that way. We would never stoop so low. And yet in your grace, in your mercy, you have sent him to do just that. And so we pray that our hearts would get just even a, a glimpse of that, even an inkling of what Jesus has done and that it would cause us to worship him. It would cause us to, to in, by faith, place our whole lives in his sure and capable hands. And we pray that you would be at work in our hearts. That you would transform us by that love so that, so that we could live not in fear. So that we could live uh, not in guilt and shame. Uh, but in the truth of what Jesus has done for us. Lord, we pray that, that you would show us the truth of our saviors. In his name we pray. Amen. Our closing hymn.